You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and uh, I tripped across a very interesting little snippet uh, about an island in the northern part of Ireland, and as I understand it, probably the most northerly Ireland of Ireland, in Estraho uh, of Donegal. And an initiative is underway to bring a focus on the island and to learn some of the history uh, and the people that had occupied the island up to when it became uh, an empty, like so many islands of Ireland, just when it was depopulated. And Nicholas Worthington is um, the chair of a group uh, that are working to research the island's unique history and heritage, uh, principally through the work of Sean Beatty and Wallace Clark. And he began to ask himself why the island uh, which, as I say, is the most northerly point of the islands of Ireland, and the oldest geological point of Ireland was so overlooked. And in 2018, he set up the Inishtal Initiative to try to help remedy this and to shine a spotlight on all aspects of Inishtal, uh, Tor Rocks and the Garvan Island history and heritage. And Nicholas is a graduate of uh, Queen's University in Belfast, and he's stud- currently studying his MA in Cultural Heritage, and Museum Studies at Ulster University. He's particularly interested in the social history of Innistrahal's resident community before 1928, the maritime links between Innistrahal and global trade during the 19th and early 20th century, and the Irish language. Nicholas. Thanks a million for coming down for a chat. Thank you very much. So yes, as you described there, we um, the Innistrahal Initiative particularly focuses on promoting research facilitating public education as well as trying to help preserve and protect the island's unique biodiversity and raise awareness of the threat of the obviously the climate crisis holds to islands like Nishtrahol. Geographically exactly where is the nearest land point on the mainland? That so would the nearest land with? point yeah. we would have, you'd be going to Malinhead, which would be the nearest land point, about between sort of 10 to 6 miles from the island and obviously in between you've got the Inishtral Sound which is a which is a great body of water fantastic history but a very choppy piece of sea and you would have then the gardens in between the two a really great part of the country and really beautiful and were these or when last were these islands occupied? Well, we had a bit of a mix there because obviously you've got um, the resident community left between 1927 and 1928. Fishing in the area had gone down substantially and it was just becoming more and more difficult for them to eke out an existence with the invent of modern trawlers. So they left at the end of the 1920s and then the lighthouse was fully automated at the end of the 1980s and then obviously a um, permanent lighthouse just came off the island then so it's been, its community has been, on, has been gone for just under 100 years and obviously the lighthouse keepers have been off since the 80s and Nicholas prior to the island being depopulated how large a community had there been out there at its peak? At its peak is actually around 1901 where the new school on the Nishtral was built. And we're talking about 88 people and a substantial, you know, about 11, 13 families. So a substantial amount, including obviously the lighthouse keepers and everything to do with the light. Because there was a lighthouse on the island as well as a fog station and a signal station. 
And, of course, signal station would have been, given that you, you identified as the most northerly point uh, of Ireland, uh, that would have, I suppose, been a focal point for communications uh, across the Atlantic. Absolutely. So, um, in many ways, Inishtrahol was a bit of an outpost of um, Derry, Derry Port. So, I mean, that, that port opens up the island to the whole of the Atlantic. So, trade from Canada and the US obviously came across. A little bit on the sort of the more illicit side, many of many Canadian and American ships crossing the Atlantic would leave cargo on Inishtrahol before going down to um, to Derry Harbour so they could avoid duty on stuff like tobacco and stuff like that so um, so a bit, a bit of an illicit trade but yes um, hugely important to the whole in the, they used to call the island the Isle of Ships in the 19th century because that piece of water between Innistral and Mallowhead especially during the summer months would have to be packed with a shipping going back and forward because obviously it was on a very strategic point partition and things like that later on in the um, 20th and the early 20th century obviously changed that as Derry lost its hinterland and the whole the whole country around there changed. So Nicholas any of these islands that are off Ireland also must have seen a certain amount of shipwreck. Um, yes. I, I presume there are a number also that must have run aground in that area. Absolutely you've got many that have run aground such as HMS Wasp we have a membership magazine, and we've recently just covered that in our latest um, that comes out this week. So the HMS Wasp, as well as um, during the Second World War, you have a lot of them, either U-boats, and the, there's two SS Athenas, the 1903 and the 1922, and both of those SS Athenas lie off an hole sunk by U-boats in both wars, at the start of both wars, so 1917-1939. So the seas around there are absolutely packed. Also, in regards to U-boats, then, at the end of the first, at the end of the Second World War, sorry, they dragged a lot of the U-boats out, and a lot of them are scuttled around the area. So, if you're a diver, it's a fantastic part of the country to explore, uh, because there's just there is an absolute abundance of shipwrecks. <laughs> We're always uh, coming, and new ones have been coming across quite regularly. And a very interesting story in the 60s of the Argostello, which was a, a Greek cargo ship, and that ran aground on the tall rocks just off Anistral. And um, there's, it was it was dug and roll. It was just a cargo ship, and there was no illicit. But in the local sort of folk tour, folklore, when it was some was around the Cuban Missile Crisis, and people said that oh, it was carrying, it was carrying um, guns or even missiles from the Soviet Union. It wasn't, but it's always a great um, it's a great local piece of mythology that you always hear when you when you go up. So uh, topographically, then also Nicholas, the island themselves, because any islands up around that part of the country would not be flat. What would be the high point on Inishtahel? So it's a very, it's, it's a interesting island in many ways because obviously with the islands the size of it, you often get a slant or you get a one high point. But you, in many ways, it's like it's two hills. You've got Inishtahel west with the whole home of the new lighthouse and this troll east the home of the old lighthouse so there's two lighthouses both of them have been built on the peak just off Inishtral West you would have the highest point of the island and we're talking I believe if I'm just double check my records we're talking I'm trying to think exactly about 40 an elevation about 40 49 metres so relatively high and then in the middle of the island you've got a flat sort of 
a flat piece of open pasture, which is where most of the, it's almost like a little hamlet where most of the cottages are that the community builds, and then you'd have potato, lazy potato beds and things like that. So relatively a low-lying island in the middle, but then two fantastic peaks on either side. What's striking me is curious, for an island that's, uh, well, then just the area of the island, what is it? Yes. The area of the island is about, so we're talking, it's a mile long, so about 40, 40, 35 km, so it's relatively small, but I think the thing about why it is, because it was very heavily populated, especially in the, um, when you think about the size of the island, is it is the trade links, and it's the fact that, you know, it's that old, it's going back to that added of it being the Isle of Ships. That really allowed it to support a larger population than perhaps it would have naturally if it had been in a different part of the country that were similar size islands. So that's what I always think. I'm curious then, something as simple as clean drinking water must have been an interesting aspect of how things were dealt with. Absolutely. Now when you go to the island it has um, you. it's an interesting one, it's the only island in the north of the country where the landing point it's not on the south side but on the north point so that also links to the name so when you go in you go through a port called um, Port Moore it might be a port but it's literally just a wee so it's an open bay with a bit of a um, key and you go in and the first thing you see when you get off the boat is you see a fantastic well so the, most of that water for the island would have come off that well there are also one or two other freshwater wells on the island which are now over covered but um, it's still I mean the only thing is now with the change of um, the change of sea levels slightly, you wouldn't, we couldn't really tell. Them. I think that research has to be done to see if that fresh water is still accessible or if it's been um, tainted by salt due to changes of, sort of levels and things. But um, yes, fresh water very accessible on the island in its community days. And from an archaeological perspective, then, how far back have you been able to establish that there were? people occupying the island and what kind of things have you been able to find? Well we've absolutely, um, although it's not something we cover directly, there's been uh, archaeologists on the island which is, have said that it has been um, inhabited since earliest times of um, the actual the island of Ireland inhabitants. So you've got, there, there was at some point, there is no record of it, but there is a suggestion that it was home to a monastic community and if I'm trying to think exactly of when it was, but we're talking, um, it, it definitely has been populated for most of the island of Ireland's human history. It, it had some kind of resident community on. And there's, there's been fl- different flint pieces learned and some very interesting archaeologi- archaeological finds on the island. So then, since the island was depopulated and the lighthouses were decommissioned, uh, I effectively would imagine it's been an abandoned island. Absolutely. Now, um, it's owned at the moment by Irish Lights, and they do go out fairly regularly, and there's there's even been a tiny bit of controversy this week about uh, they cleared out the lighthouse keeper's cottage, and unfortunately... Some of the work done led to burning of pieces of historic furniture, so that there has been a bit of controversy this week around that. But it has remainly left, been left quiet, um, as say Irish Lights would have authority over the island, as well as the lock agency that deals with lock foil, and then up to Inishtrahol, they would do a lot around um, ecological preservation and Birdwatch Island. But it has been relatively, relatively quiet. Nothing too much has. Um, 
has been done too much to the island. And then many of the um, many people in Glengood and Malin Head who would have a big stakeholders, in fact, quite enjoy the fact that it's been a it's been just a peaceful resting place. And when you go to the island, it really feels like you're on the moon because all you hear is that fantastic noise of bird sound, and it's truly a peaceful place. There are boat trips, but not huge quantities. Now you just said when you go on the island. So how does somebody get onto the island? Well, you, there's there's two um, operators. We've been lucky enough then to get a new operator this year called Amazing Grace Cruises, and then there's another operator called Inishowen Boating. And you would leave from Bunagee Pier, which is just up from Coldaff, and it takes about half an hour to get to by boat. And in the summer, they're semi regular, semi regular trips. And once you get there, obviously it's important to respect the island. And when you when you are at Portmore, there are signs like a little a little bit of a code of conduct just saying what what kind of things people expect of you when you're on the island around rubbish and staying away from certain areas of it's a huge um, breeding population of birds you have this big population of different um, birds on the island which are very important both national and regional importance so you've got to be careful around there but if you can get out and if you are respectful it makes for a fantastic day and a once in a lifetime experience in many ways Given COVID-19 and how travel has been restricted and uh, a lot of other places have literally had no ability to attract tourism, uh, an isolated place has certain advantages because you can probably, yes. if you can get out there by maintaining distance, you're, you're, you're away from it all. And there is no COVID-19 on, on uh, in Australia. We hope there's been no COVID-19 on the I have to say both of the... Um, both of the operators that go out to the island have done a really good job. In Sharon Boating used to take 12, and they've slashed the numbers down to eight, and are taking great health um, measures to make sure the groups they take out respect social distancing, and they can imply when they're especially on the boat. So we've been very lucky um, in regards to that. The operators have been very responsible. And there is a bit of a... Obviously, we've not been able to accept here in Ireland um, as many tourists from obviously Canada and other places in the world the local tour the local tourism industry of people the staycation has been really fantastic and it's been great seeing people from Ireland re-exploring places like Malmhead and Inishtrahol instead of you know taking their holidays in the Algarve or South of France or Italy or wherever is the big holiday destination so that's been a positive and uh, Nicholas you mentioned this uh it was part of a trade route with North America, Canada and uh, yes. the US. Uh, were there any specific artefacts or any history that you were able to glean from your research on that? Well, other than sort of when we think about the smuggling, obviously you've got the signal station, which was like a, a, direct, um, a direct resource of Derry Port and the same for the um, signal station. On Malin Head, so that, but not a huge amount, unfortunately. That's something that definitely could be done with further research in sort of getting that social that thing to global trade, and obviously, you know, um, trade with Canada and trade with the US. And there are some, as I think you uh, highlighted, uh, Canadian connections with the absolutely. Island. Well, other than um, the smuggling links, um, Thomas McGee obviously left from Tremone Bay, which would be just down from Anishtrahol. So on his way out to Canada, um, he obviously would have passed the island. And so there's a little bit of a link there. So hopefully he would have taken time just to look out and enjoy Anishtrahol because it is when you when you do go past, it's a although it's a very low line island, it just it just really says and what people say, especially immigrants from the US, 
um, when, when you get, it's like the last sign of Ireland if you would be leaving from the north. In leaving from the north, there was huge mass emigration in the 1840s because yes. of the famine. Um, yes. How are that area, was that impacted or is there anything to indicate there were uh, people who had to leave the island or with the island was affected by uh, the 1840s? Well, it's very interesting. Obviously, we don't have records for 1841, but we do have some 18, for 1851 records of population, and we did see a 25.9% rise. So, and the reports I've heard, especially in conversations with Sean Beattie, who has he wrote the seminal text on Nisrael, the Book of Nisrael, and um, he's always his research shows that there was no blight on Nisrael, and many communities actually chose to go out as you could get better, you know. It's, it was a fishing community. A lot of, although they did um, grow potatoes and other things, they, a lot of it was the plenty of the sea. So they benefited. They were managed to see out the storm of um, the famine quite well. And emigration, obviously, from the island, although we don't, I don't know of at least many uh, island descendants who've moved over to Canada, it would have been later when the island was depopulated, and there are one or two families now in the U.S., in the long term, sorry, so Nicholas, in the long term then, what would you hope can be achieved or what do you guys hope that she can make happen? In the long, now, obviously there is, there is change coming and we're very aware that there will be something happening with the island. As part of Irish Lights clearing out the cottage this week, some suggestion is that there is a plan ahead. But what we're most concerned of, rather than these lofty what should be happening the island, we really want to focus on looking at the island's history and making sure that we can preserve as much oral history from people as possible. Obviously, because it was depopulated in 1929, there are one or two people who would still have links to the island, be they grandparents or even parents. So it's really important to get their stories recorded digitally and preserve them for future generations. And then obviously any documentation that can be found or artefacts would be fantastic. So that's what we're focusing on much. And then we would like to see um, some kind of centenary marking the 1928-1929 sort of um, depopulation. So it would be good to have an event at the end of this decade to mark that of 100 years of depopulation. Many areas in Ireland have um, family names associated with them, and that can often be very specific. Are there any particular family names that would be associated with the island? Absolutely. Now, we this year we launched a, as part of our Telpos Raise Fund, we created a cottage, a map of the island with each cottages, and the big ones, the names that come up in there are your Malachlan, so that's a really big island name, as well as a few Hooton. So, Hooton, Malachlan, nah, I think those would be the major, the major names on the island, as well as obviously, um, Yes, Hooton, Malachlan would be the two big ones. That would be most of the most families on the island. When an island like that with a relatively small population, when it comes to schooling and um, just, I suppose, meeting people that ultimately would sustain families and sustain life, um, was there a school and if there was um, I presume it might have been just a one room or whatever but if there wasn't then that would have required the the uh, residents to have to go on to the mainland and even when it would have come to a certain amount of trade that they would have needed to go on to the mainland to meet people uh, particularly if you're looking to find somebody to marry 
um, you need to get outside your own community. Are there any historical records of that type of activity? Well, the school on Inishrahol was built in 1901, and before that, schooling was done on quite an informal basis. And obviously, when we're thinking about things like community and and communion, which is such, which would have been such an important part in your experience of growing up in that part of Ireland at that time, they went off to Mal and uh, take communion, communion and take their home first Sunday communion, things like that. The school was as uh, it's. The way it's built is you've got a one a room. It's relatively I've got one big school room, and then you've got a smaller, almost like a hallway. And then you have the schoolmaster's house, which was made of um, which was red brick. It was very uh, very um, quite a fancy building at the time, and real money went into those. But um, yes, there was a bit of season. Although some people would stay on the island all year round, and there's even counts of one woman who never left the island until she was very late in life, when she actually finally went over to the island. She is said to have cried and said, you know, God, I, I never knew Ireland was, you know, people had said it was big, but I never knew it was this big. Because obviously all she had known in her entire life was an Ishtahol. But um, no, especially as well for childbirth, there was a story, the way that frogs aren't native to the island. And in the, in the early 19th century, a woman went off to give birth on the mainland and she actually brought two frogs with her. She brought a, ben, a wee Ben back obviously, and then two frogs as well, and that's the way. So, yeah, there was definitely seasonality, and during the winter months, many of the families would pack up shop and spend it on the mainland. So, although it was, the community was there, it was always very flexible. You you could never have eked out permanent existence on the island for such a big community. So people came and went, and then also, you know, you, you'd go down and you'd get your peat in Glengird and um, in um, Carindona as well, so very transient, not at all. You know, I never people think of these communities as being isolated, but they really had links with the wider world, and obviously, with the shipping going constantly past, they had international access to international trade as well. The awareness of this island and these the, was something I, until I tripped across it, I wasn't even aware that there was an island out there. Um, yeah, it's it's one of I suppose one of those little hidden gems. Like we're all very familiar with Tory and uh, the Iron Islands and. Um, yeah, you know, the, but uh, yeah, uh, I imagine there are a lot of little communities like this or little islands around Ireland that just totally are kind of nearly off the radar. Absolutely, and completely forgotten in many ways. But really, the, when you look at the community, it can be compared to um, it's not too far away from communities on the mainland. You know, it was just like a community in Glengarry or Malinhead, but obviously it had the added challenge of being cut off and. Um, having that, li- that little bit harder to get in and out. And I often say, you know, I often think of them, Tory and Anishrahol, almost like province system. And if you'd have ever wondered what perhaps Anishrahol would have been like if it had maintained its population, I think it wouldn't have been too far a, a smaller version of them, um, Tory in many ways. But um, it, is a, it is a, I would say it's, he- it's heaven on earth, some people call it, and I certainly would agree with that. And it is a hidden gem. And then would you have had... Uh connection over to Scotland because certainly I know with some of the other islands people and even from the mainland people went and worked over in Scotland and um, there was a certain amount of to and fro would there have been a connection with Scotland and in Australia? Absolutely, you know, just like um, Rathlin, so the experience of Rathlin is in many ways it was easier to go to Scotland than go over to uh, parts of Ulster and um, what is now Northern Ireland and the North. So yes, definitely. I mean, you would have had people going fishing and ending up in Scotland as well. And obviously, the tatty hawkers that 
that migrant work between all of the parts of Donegal and um, Ireland definitely played a role in the island. When we talk about really ancient history, there's a fantastic legend about a fisherman who went out from Ministerhold, ended up on one of the, in the Hebrides, and he fell in love with one of the chieftains, the chief, one of the chieftain's daughter, and they ran away and they went back to Ministerhold. And many years later, after he had died, his um, the the daughter, her father, the chief, some of their soldiers found the island, went to, and obviously he was passed away, but she had two sons, and the story goes that um, they got them really drunk on the islands, pointing as you can imagine, and because obviously they didn't want to go back and they were worried about what um, these soldiers would do to the island, they unfortunately killed them and supposedly their their bodies lie in, in Port Moore and a big, there's a big patch of Roman nettles and that supposedly marks the spot. So it's very, very connected, just like anything. So, um, Nicholas, if somebody wants to find out more or if somebody wants to help with the project, how can they do that? Well, absolutely. Check us out on Inistrahol initiative all lowercase all one word dot com and you can access all of our resources on there and that would be fantastic we also have we're also open to donations and we're always looking for we're very lucky we have a, a good base of membership so check our membership program out and if you want to learn more about the island check out our online journal as well as checking out um, Sean Beatty's website which is historyofdonegal.com and you're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at IH Initiative. So we're on everything, so please work away. Well, uh, Nicholas, it's been fantastic having a chat and learning more, and I really appreciate your Absolutely, time. absolute pleasure. And uh, wish you every success in the future. Thank you very much. It's been great talking to you and your Canadian listeners.